Hey everyone, welcome back to Hear Hear, Dan's audiobook podcast. I'm Dan Masterton. April's been a fun month. I had the chance to go to New Orleans for the NCEA annual conference back in person for 2022. I had the chance to lead a session workshop on bringing Catholic social teaching to all the places of the Catholic school campus. Got the chance to meet with some really great teachers and campus ministers and other folks at the conference, both at my session and at the Viatorian's vocation ministry table in the exhibit hall. Looking forward to going back again next year at the Viatorians and maybe offering a presentation again. I also got the chance to see my NCA books, Cultivating Faith and Exploring Faith on Catholic Campus Ministry and Retreat Ministry with Young People, kind of out in the wild, and got to hang out at NCA Central and talk to some folks who were thinking about buying the book and trying to learn more about campus ministry and retreat ministry. I've also spent some time this month doing the final edits on my next fiction story, which I'm hoping to wrap up in May. Uh, I still got to finalize the title, work on some cover art, and then this time I'm going to package it into a few different formats for an ebook that I can just give away for free. And also I'll be making weekly episodes, releasing a chapter at a time on this podcast feed. So keep an eye out for that in June. In the meantime, right now I'm going to read to you my April blog posts from the Tuesdays of this month. As always, you can find my writing on my link tree at linktr.ee slash danmasterton. You can follow me on Twitter at thisladdan. And you can find all my blog posts at restlessheartblog.blogspot.com or search for me on Facebook. Enjoy. Dispensation and Obligation My dispensation from my Sunday Mass obligation was lifted, effective Palm Sunday. Bishop Hicks of my home diocese of Joliet wrote that with the end of mask mandates and the easing of social gathering restrictions, it is time to reinstate the obligation of Catholics in our diocese to attend Sunday Mass. This ends a weird and wild two-year period in which Catholics, on a wide scale, were not expected to be at Sunday Mass and the only time during my life when I ever missed Mass for any reason on consecutive weeks, let alone for months on end. I appreciate the way Bishop Hicks shared his decision. First, he noted that the perennial canonical exception from obligation still exists for those who are ill or contagious. I think gaining awareness of this exception is a blessing of the pandemic, perhaps inviting greater sensitivity for me in the future about caring for my neighbors instead of insisting on going to Mass unless I'm in the hospital or something. Additionally, Bishop Hicks emphasized the joy of a community reuniting, and doing so for such a special purpose as communion and Mass. And he identified our return to full Sunday celebrations as a welcome home. Amen, Bishop. One area of liturgical life that gained major exposure was the simulcast Mass. With congregations unable to gather in person, parishes largely turned to live streaming and recording, such that they could keep their parishioners engaged remotely. Cathedrals and major churches that had already been doing this for years seemed ahead of the curve and may have won greater viewership by having higher production values and wider-reaching broadcast channels already in place. Some young adults I worked with asked some religious priests to do a Mass over Zoom, not just to give them a more intimate, familiar group, but also to maintain some level of interaction, speaking responses, doing communal petitions at the prayers of the faithful, and faith-sharing after Mass. While televised Mass has been a staple of ministry to the ill and homebound, who would also receive hospitality visits with the Eucharist, it threw most of us into the deep end without experience. And personally, I was not a fan. Early on when it was new and I thought it may be short-lived, I certainly tuned in, especially during Lent and Easter. However, I came to find it largely unfulfilling, 
maybe a commentary both on the incompleteness of the medium and on me. I didn't feel drawn to speak the responses or sit and stand and kneel or pray along with the songs or to thoughtfully pray for spiritual communion. I couldn't figure out how to engage and I let it fade from practice. I can't crawl into my kids' heads, but my older daughter could only really stick with it for a short time before losing track. It challenged me to feel greater empathy for the homebound and ill, who might only engage with liturgy in this way. It left me wondering what better ways could be found, if any. And it pointed me toward growing hunger to return to the Mass in the before times way. Spoken congregational responses, even if murmured. The sung prayers and hymns, even if off-key. And the communal presence of the Church, even if haggard and half-assed. It has been a blessing to get back to the routine of Sunday mornings, and I've relished bringing my family back to our pews. As we return to the parish, though, it has definitely gotten me wondering on the perennial questions that are only more acute now. How will we cover budget shortfalls that aren't recovering? How can we reanimate lapsed community life? What is or will be my role in this? How can I try to be more active? To what extent do we get engaged in our school and or RE program? For starters, I was able to attend an in-person listening session for young adults that my parish held as part of our synod gatherings. In addition to providing input to the prompts, I also got to meet a number of the parish council and share some of my hopes for fellowship among parents and families. One of my ideas has been to copy the parents group from my previous parish, and the counselor who I met encouraged me to pursue it. I emailed the parish staff yesterday, and they promised to discuss it at their staff meeting. In the meantime, growing hope is before us. First and foremost, the numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are as low as they've been since our data tracking got fully functional in late spring 2020. This drop, along with natural immunity and the hope that vaccination rates will keep ticking up, bodes well. In the pews, especially at St. Francis of Assisi in Bolingbrook, Illinois, I find hope in the diversity in our refilling pews. Our parish gathers people of many races and ethnicities and of all ages, and I think this reflects a church alive. I can see this too in the young people who regularly minister as greeters and choir members and cantors, and the students who represent our joint parish school at special masses and in fundraisers. I'm also heartened by the way many still wear masks by personal choice, even in the absence of a mandate, how we maintain a section where masking and social distancing is required, and how I've never seen a dispute of any kind at our church or any resistance to the vaccine endorsements from our priests and holding of a vaccine clinic on our grounds. I hope that, as my family gains new stability and as the parish comes back to full function, that we can be more involved, more outgoing, and more engaged, starting with this parents' group idea. And I hope that others, no matter how much or how little you went to Mass these last two years, will get back in the habit again. What better time to rejoin in-person communion than Holy Week and Easter? The risen Lord awaits. Not all traditions have milkshakes. As far back as I can remember, my mom always made an Easter bunny cake for Easter Sunday. With some basic box mix and a can of frosting, she baked the mold and frosted it white with some accents of color for the bunny's features. Then there was always the jelly bean garnish scattered around the plate that we jokingly considered bunny poop. Even nine years after she passed away, my dad still uses the same mold, same process, and achieves the same traditional result for us. When I was a middle schooler, and I was responsible enough that my parents let me ride my bike places, I rallied some friends to go to Good Friday living stations at our parish. We knew some friends who were acting in the prayer service, so I persuaded a few other friends to come see them in the service with me. I enticed them by offering some french fries and milkshakes afterwards. It was never more than a few of us, and the treat sounded better than it was, served out of a little window at a defunct train station McDonald's in my hometown. 
but it became a tradition that lasted several years and eventually included driving until we all went off to college. At the University of Notre Dame, the Easter Vigil at the Basilica is a heck of an event. A ton of seating is reserved for the families of RCIA students and staff and clergy, and then a huge line forms to try to get those last few seats. People start queuing hours beforehand. The liturgy is big and beautiful, and the full reflection of what Easter joy ought to be in the risen Lord. And unlike Meatless Good Friday, the custom following Easter Vigil Mass was not shy or restrained, though it did still involve milkshakes. Catholics flocked to the nearby Steak and Shake just down the road, and we gorged ourselves on greasy burgers, shoesting french fries, and indulgent milkshakes. And with the three-plus-hour Mass not starting until 8 p.m., we usually only made it to our table about midnight. Easter ought to be marked by joy, celebration, literal feasting. Catholics and many Christians are oddly skilled at embracing the ashen sackcloth of Lent, but sometimes struggle to make the pivot to a feast-filled Easter. Maybe because we're too guilty about the indulgences we allow ourselves the other 320 days of the year? Either way, one of the strange realizations I have from time to time is that I am the primary mover for these things now. Growing up, I gained these traditions from my parents and my family. In school, my friends and I sort of took turns collaborating on stuff. In adult life, it sort of continues to be a social group effort. Now, as a parent and spouse, and as the primary stay-at-home parent, it's more or less up to me to try to get things like this started. It means trying to be proactive and intentional about doing things that could become traditions, and not necessarily predetermining that something will become a tradition just because I managed to pull it off once. It's possible no one will like it. One success in my children's young lives is the importance we've placed on their patron saints. We invoke their patrons each night at bedtime prayer, we talk about their stories and examples when we naturally can, and we celebrate their feast days each year with ice cream. Hopefully also a daily mass, a service project, or more as they get older. Coming out of the steepest restrictions of the pandemic, we hope we can be more active at our parish, that we can get to know the folks at our favorite fully reopened brewery, that maybe we become regulars at a few of our increasingly favorite places. On the same token, we hope holidays, birthdays, and other special occasions take on this hallowed traditional feel. I know I need to do my best to bring my family together with our loved ones and ensure we have opportunities to make great memories. I know I also need to leave plenty of space for my kids and family to stumble upon traditions we didn't even know we wanted. Hopefully this Easter is another step toward a lifetime of rich and joyful celebrations for our family and for yours. The greatest sign of intelligence? I think we should start every conversation, whether it's the president making a speech or us doing a show with Okay, obviously I'm a jackass, but I've prepared this evening of entertainment. Or, here's the state of the union. The fact that people are too insecure to admit to our foibles I think is one of our greatest failings. I think the greatest sign of intelligence, I'm always impressed, when someone speaks like that, they have my full attention. That's an exchange from Conan Bryan Needs a Friend, Nick Offerman speaking first and then Conan responding from April 10th, 2022. In pastoral ministry, from teaching in the classroom to forming young leaders to directing retreats, I always hope that I can be someone who creates a space with conducive conditions for growth. And at the same time, I hope I never appear to be someone who is completely sure of himself or who has all the answers. This is a bit easier to do in direct ministry, but perhaps a bit harder to do when writing or presenting. That's why I was struck by this exchange between Conan O'Brien and Nick Offerman on Conan's podcast. Earlier This day, I offered a session at the annual National Catholic Educational Association Conference. 
I submitted a proposal about bringing Catholic social teaching to all areas of Catholic school campus life. My thought was trying to offer a little bit of what on what CST is, some why on its importance, and a whole lot of how on making it happen. As I brainstormed and outlined and compiled slides and resources, I worried a bit that my ideas might be too idealistic, too disruptive, too antagonistic. At other times, I did have some self-assurance that my education and experience justified offering this perspective as best as I could. On the whole, I've always struggled to toe a good line. How can I demonstrate expertise without being dismissive or superior? How can I offer adaptable advice and examples without being wishy-washy or pulling my punches? My hope is always to give a strong portrait of what I have seen work and why I think it's worth trying, but to leave space for questions, to filter it through others' skills and passions, and adapt what I offer so that it can be practical and effective in others' ministry. I can never manage a shtick or gimmick, and I'm a terrible, timid self-promoter. How can I overcome this and still do something helpful with peers? So in my presentation, in slightly cleaner language, I used that little exchange as a way to try to contextualize the information I was about to offer. It's an explicit way to hold two truths in tension that bracket the effort I make in accompaniment with other ministers. First, at my core, I am a bit of a jackass. Ask my wife or brothers or best friends. Second, I have education and experience, passion and skills, and a desire to share and exchange in exchanges to help good ministry. I've always found ministry, especially writing, to be largely self-edifying, something I can enjoy as a good in and of itself, only made greater when it takes root in others, builds communities, and nurtures deepened faith. This cheeky but authentic exchange from Conan's podcast helped clarify a healthy approach, one in which ministry is offered as gift, in humility and imperfection, not with clicks or quotas or superficial metrics as its objective, but rather Christ. preferential option for creation. One of the most challenging but most impactful parts of Catholic social teaching to our daily living is the preferential option. This theme is spelled out with different titles depending where you look. You might see preferential option for the poor or preferential option for the poor and vulnerable. When I share this theme or teach about it, I like to stretch out the title a little bit. When I lead service, I want others to encounter and think about people whose society has pushed off to its margins. In my Viatorian spirituality, we would describe it as making sure to walk closely and compassionately with people whose society accounts of little importance. So I usually call this theme preferential option for people who are marginalized. And I challenge myself this way. Christ calls us to intentionally consider people who are marginalized in everything we do individually, socially, and communally. One thing that helps me carry this out is establishing routines and habits to make positive behaviors more consistent. So my wife and I set a line item in the monthly budget, $20 or maybe more, that is for an undefined donation to respond to the needs of people who are marginalized. At some point, usually as I close up the bills and payments for a month, we identify some kind of social need, usually related to the news or a story we've heard from friends, and send our donation that way. One day last week, a morning social media scroll reminded me it was Earth Day. I had forgotten the date of the holiday, but it wasn't totally off my radar. My daughters and I had passed through a gardening event at the library a few days earlier, and we used their materials to create seed balls out of newspaper and sunflower seeds. My older daughter had made an Earth Day sign at preschool a few days earlier, too. Throughout the day, I was glad to find that Catholic friends, Catholic media outlets, and others online were marking Earth Day, too. Some folks offered prayers. 
A friend reshared her old tips on resisting wish cycling of non-recyclable items. And NPR shared a special episode about the economic complexity of recycling and also reshared a mini documentary from last year that helps unravel the myths of recycling and challenges people to reduce their front-end consumption, something that I watched with my daughter. As the day unfolded, I wanted to act. Of course, I'm liking and retweeting stuff during my scroll breaks, but I get uncomfortable when I feel like I'm only a slacktivist. What could I do, even if small? When I went grocery shopping, I grabbed my reusable bags. They've been allowed again informally for a few months, and I'm back to using them almost 100% of the time. Still forget once in a while. When I grabbed my cart, they were offering one free reusable bag for Earth Day, and sharing that their corporate headquarters had given full go-ahead to allow all reusable bags. Hooray for the end of ungreen pandemic restrictions. Hopefully this helps folks like me get back to 100% reusables, and maybe help spur other laggers to become adopters too. Later, I'd been meaning to get some more wildflowers and native items planted. I have six milk jugs where little shoots of local plants are already sprouting. Fingers crossed. So I dumped old weedy soil from our two little deck planters out into the compost. I shoveled out some deep bin hummus to put in the planters and combined it with a little new store-bought soil. Then I planted the seed balls that my daughter and I made, as well as some additional sunflower seeds. As the day was wrapping up, I realized I hadn't made our preferential option donation for the month, but I thought, giving for Earth Day isn't opting for the marginalized. Then I paused. Or is it? In many ways, care for creation and good stewardship oddly remain fringe issues. The extent to which mainstream thought accepts the need to spend, legislate, and act differently in light of climate change is still pretty flimsy. So really, the Earth is treated largely as marginal. And what have my thoughts and actions for Earth Day been, if not preferentially opting for creation? It's dawning on me that a preferential option mindset is fundamental to justly caring for God's creation, as long as chains eludes us. The deep need to do charity and justice by people on the margins remains, but this added element fits alongside as part of a holistic mindset. So I went to my favorite Catholic group, the St. Kateri Conservation Center at kateri.org, and sent our bit for the month of April to support their work. Their impressive staff of professional and faith-filled experts work as volunteers and apply their fundraising to their ministry and outreach. If you feel inclined to opt for creation financially, perhaps in step with Earth Day or Arbor Day, join me in supporting the Kateri crew, or at least follow them on Twitter or Instagram. As we contemplate the call of Christ to intentionally think, speak, and act in ways that consider people on the margins, may we too find our ways, even when small, to opt for God's creation and be better stewards. That's all for this month's edition of the Blogcast. I hope you enjoyed my posts from April. Keep an eye out at the end of next month for the May episode of the Blogcast and more information on the release of my next fiction story, which will come out in audiobook and ebook form in June. Remember, you can find my writing on my link tree at linktr.ee dot slash Dan Masterton, and you can follow me on Twitter at this lad Dan. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Instrumentals on this podcast are done by Jason Pham.